The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Last week I started exploring the topic of the Four Noble Truths and did kind of an overview of the Four Noble Truths last week. And this week I'd like to kind of go do a little bit of a deeper dive into the First Noble Truth. So just a a little bit of a recap. The Four Noble Truths are kind of one of the foundational teachings of the Buddha, it is said that the the teaching on the Four Noble Truths is the very first discourse he gave, the very first thing that he thought to explain and explore with, with other people after he had his, his awakening, after he had this breakthrough in understanding about how to be happy. His whole quest was around this question of suffering and the question, is it possible to be free of suffering? Is this, the Pali term for this is dukkha. Is it possible to be free of suffering? And this uh, journey took him on a kind of an understanding of what dukkha actually is. At least what is the kind of experience that we tend to call suffering that we can be free of. There are some kinds of experiences that we tend to call suffering, just like unpleasant experience we might call suffering. But the Buddha pointed to, you know, unpleasant experience is going to come and go, and it is not inherently suffering. But our relationship to it, the way we react to it, the way we, we um, uh, navigate it with our our minds, that is where we tend to really experience the inner mental distress and pain. And it is this inner inner mental distress and pain that is kind of the focus of what the Buddha understood is possible to be free of. At one point he said, the freedom from mental pain and grief, this is freedom. And so this was his quest, and he found this possibility of freedom. He found in the, uh, the statement of the Four Noble Truths, he, he first recognized, and the First Noble Truth is stating, this is dukkha. And I think this uh, first statement, this is dukkha, is really an acknowledgement of what is the kind of suffering that we can be free of. This is dukkha. And then he pointed to some of the, um, he pointed to the kind of the structure or the psychological underpinnings of that suffering being connected to a mental process in our minds of craving, of wanting things to be a certain way, of needing, a feeling of needing things to be a certain way. Desire itself is not inherently problematic if it's, if it's more of a, a kind of an aspiration, you know, the, the, the range of the word desire covers from aspiration to kind of clinging and neediness. And um, um, it's, the, it's the side of the, the neediness, the kind of the, it's not okay if things don't go the way I want them to. That's the place where the Buddha pointed to this craving being kind of at the root of our suffering. And so he pointed to this, this kind of, um, the second noble truth is a pointer to this uh, arising or the origin of suffering comes with this arising of craving. And that the freedom that happens is when that craving ends, when we no longer have the craving, then there is a freedom from the suffering. And 
he also pointed to there being a path to understand this whole process, a path, a way that we can each engage. And that this is an important part of the Four Noble Truths too, I believe, that these truths are not just simple statements to be believed and that the belief is what's going to free us. That's not the way this works. The, um, the confidence or faith in these truths is not sufficient but that confidence will potentially lead us to act, to engage, to walk the path ourselves. And the fourth noble truth is, what, are, what is the path? What are the things? What are the things that we need to engage in? Wise view, wise understanding, wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood, wise effort, wise mindfulness, and wise concentration. These are kind of the tools of practice that we have to engage with. So simple belief is not, is not sufficient. We have to walk the path ourselves. We have to explore this is suffering for ourselves. And that exploration of this is suffering, the, the other piece of the, te- the Buddhist teaching on the Four Noble Truths is he pointed not only to the action of the Eightfold Path itself, but that each of these truths has an action associated with it. He said we need to understand dukkha. We need to understand suffering. We need to abandon or let go of the craving that comes in the middle of suffering. We need to realize for ourselves the release from suffering, the freedom, and we need to cultivate or develop the path to walk the path for ourselves. So an engagement with this. This is a very practical kind of exploration. What can we do to explore and understand how and why we suffer? So in a way we are kind of modeling or following what the Buddha did, he had to understand suffering for himself in order to be free of it. And so the kind of a key to this whole process is getting familiar or, or um, learning about what suffering actually is. The first noble truth, this is dukkha. This is suffering. So what is suffering? This is suffering. This is the piece I'd like to explore today. One of the... um, ways to begin to understand this word, dukkha, is to look at its derivation in the Pali language. It has two parts to it, the word. The do part means something like bad. And the other part of the word, the ka part, seems to be connected to, or, or kind of the derivation of it seems to be related to Uh, the space inside of a wheel. So where, you know, the axle, the hole inside of the wheel, the space inside of the wheel, where the axle would go. And so, if we think about what that means, a bad space inside the wheel. If you have... There's so many different ways the space inside the wheel could be bad. It might be that that space is off-center. It might be that it's too small for the axle. It might be that it's broken or too big. So many different ways that, that, that space can be off, and it would result in many different kinds of rides with, on that wheel. It might just simply be a slightly kind of tight, ride, feeling like the wheel doesn't move very smoothly. Or it might be a catastrophic ride where the wheel comes off and the whole vehicle crashes. And so this, this to me really points to the range 
of what dukkha covers. The word suffering for us, you know, this is the word that's typically tra- that dukkha is typically translated as. That word suffering tends to tends to have a, a sense of being something big. We, we think of suffering as being bigger kinds of things in our lives. But the word dukkha has such a broad range. It might mean just the subtlest kind of unease. And it can mean the deep, searing pain that happens with oppression and war and... Uh, the, the, the pain that happens with the death of a dear friend. or So, so there's just such a range that the kind of pain that comes when we're feeling like there's injustice in the world. or So there's a, a really broad range to dukkha. Some translators have used different words to translate this from stress, which kind of points to the the subtler levels, unsatisfactoriness, also pointing to some subtler kinds of things, to suffering. So here's some other suggestions. Disturbance, irritation, frustration, insufficiency, dislike. So these kinds of these kinds of words. So the, the, the word dukkha covers a whole range of what we tend to call suffering from the subtlest to the broadest. And the Buddha pointed to different ways that suffering happens for us. In one teaching he described three different kinds of dukkha. And in some ways this, to me it kind of points to some of the different levels that we can experience dukkha at also. So these three ways of experiencing dukkha, he he says, are there's dukkha due to pain or dukkha due to unpleasant happenings. There's dukkha due to change. And this, um, one of the um, um, teachings around this, these three levels of dukkha, also connects these three levels of dukkha, three kinds of dukkha, to the three kinds of feelings that we have. Pleasant experience, unpleasant experience, neutral experience that any experience we have is going to have one of those kinds of qualities to it at a, at a kind of a basic level. Whatever we experience is going to be either pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. It's also got lots of other qualities to it, to it whatever we're experiencing. In the physical realm, it might be hard or soft or cold or hot. But at a very basic level, there's going to be this quality of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And these three kinds of dukkha seem to be connected to this. There's the dukkha due to unpleasantness. This in Pali is called dukkha dukkha. Because the word dukkha also means unpleasant in certain contexts. So dukkha dukkha. This is the kind of dukkha we usually don't miss. It's the kind of suffering that is much more obvious to us. The dukkha due to change... The Pali, we parinama dukkha. The dukkha due to change. I understand this is connected to um, the dukkha that's related to pleasantness, which we're not typically experiencing suffering when we're experiencing something pleasant. But what we do, what does happen in our minds is that we tend to kind of latch onto that pleasantness as being, oh, I figured it out, this is the way things are supposed to be, and I've, you know, this, this, is, this, this needs to continue. And so when that pleasantness changes, as it invariably will, inevitably it will change, we experience the suffering of change. We don't like it when pleasant experience ends. 
And so this is the second kind of dukkha, the suffering due to change. And it's not the change itself that's a problem, just as in the first kind of suffering, the dukkha of pain. It's not the unpleasantness itself that's an issue. It's a kind of a a mental kind of machination around that unpleasant experience that is the suffering that the Buddha pointed to as being this is suffering. And so this, be- this begins to, to help us to understand a little bit about suffering, a distinction between the unpleasantness of experience, that that's just going to happen, and how we are with that unpleasantness. Or the pleasantness of experience changing is not inherently problematic, but our relationship to pleasantness changing that is where we tend to have suffering. Or, or even our relationship to thinking that pleasant might change. We, we have this kind of experience too. When we have something that we like, we may experience a kind of a fear or, or a sense of, of bracing against the knowing that it's going to change. So that too is a kind of a suffering around this, the, the possibility of change. We, we, we don't only experience suffering when the change itself happens. We experience suffering thinking about the change happening. And then the third kind is the suffering of existence, the, the Pali Sankara Dukkha. And this, to me, points to just that kind of everydayness of Suffering, you know, just the, the the suffering around neutral experience, just kind of the unrelenting quality of what happens in our lives. You know, we might we might connect with this around um, just living our lives. You know, that we have to get up in the morning and. We're hungry because we haven't eaten in a while, so we need to feed ourselves, and then, and then we have to, you know, go out into the world and do whatever we need to do to take care of ourselves, to take care of our family and our, our loved ones, and then we have to come home and make some more food, and then we have to go to sleep because we get tired, and then we have to get up the next day and do it all over again, and we do that again and again and again. We do that until we die. And we might have this kind of relationship with that. That is just the fact of living. And yet we might have a relationship to that of like, well, you know, is this, like, is this all there is? You know, So a kind of a suffering around the, just the everyday ordinariness of living. There can be a kind of a, a struggle with that. So to explore particularly the first kind in a little more detail, the dukkha dukkha. First of all, I'll say that the, um, the, um, the teaching around these Four Noble Truths pointing to this, um, the action that's connected with each of the truths, understanding dukkha. So part of what we're doing today at a kind of an intellectual level is exploring what did the Buddha actually mean by this term, dukkha. And so we're understanding it at that level. But at a deeper level, the understanding that the Buddha pointed to isn't just an intellectual understanding, but it is a beginning to recognize in the experience, in the moment, this is dukkha. Actually recognizing what suffering is in the experience. Noticing and recognizing the difference between unpleasant experience and our relationship to it. And seeing that the unpleasant experience itself is not really where the suffering is. And so this, um, the, each of these truths having its action associated with them also has a set of three understandings or insights that the Buddha pointed to with each truth that says this is what has to happen around each of these truths. For the first noble truth he said, the first understanding is 
This is suffering. Really understanding what suffering is. Having that understanding not as at an intellectual level, but an experiential kind of recognition. Oh, this is suffering. The second insight is this suffering should be understood. It's worth taking time to spend uh, kind of this exploration, to have this exploration or investigation of this suffering to understand it more deeply. And so the, the first part of it is recognizing, oh, this is what suffering is. And the second one is a kind of a recognition, oh, it's valuable. It's valuable to explore and understand this. What happens? How does this happen? And the third insight is suffering has been understood. That understanding comes through the direct meeting of the suffering. And my sense of that understanding is that it actually points us right to the second noble truth, that the understanding, when suffering has been understood, we understand that in the middle of it is this craving. So the... um, the first, the first part, this is suffering. You know, that, that seems like a, um, kind of an obvious thing in a way, you know, that we would recognize suffering when it happens. But this understanding or this insight is pointing to a way of recognizing what's happening is suffering with a particular perspective that orients it towards curiosity of, oh, what is this? Can I understand this? It needs to be understood. And so the, the usual way that we relate to some suffering happening is that we, you know, first of all, we might feel like we've done something wrong or that the world is against us. We feel betrayed by, our, by, by the world or betrayed by, um, or that there's injustice, you know, the injustice in the world that, that you know, that there's this, um, a, react, a reaction to. Of course there's a reaction to injustice in the world. And yet the, you know, part of the pointing here, especially around Dukkha Dukkha, if we look at Dukkha Dukkha, Think about the, the relationship to pain. The unpleasantness of pain is going to be part of our experience. And what this understanding of dukkha points to is that the pain of things happening in the world, the pain of injustice, the pain of... of um, um, you know, physical pain, the pain of having a diagnosis of cancer, so many different kinds of things can happen that have that kind of painful quality, that unpleasant quality to them. And what this teaching around dukkha points to is that our mind can have some measure of ease and peace even though the conditions of the world may not change. And so this is the, 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 the way that the Buddha talked about freedom from suffering, that, that, the, that the ease and peace that's possible in the mind is not reliant on something outside of the mind. This is really good news. If our ease and peace of mind depended on our changing the injustice in the world, depended on our making sure that there is no war, no famine, no nothing uh, that could create that kind of, that, that, that we react to, no physical pain, no falling down and having broken legs or, or bruises or no cancer, if, if our ease of heart, if our peace of heart were dependent on that, then freedom 
would not be possible. That, that kind of ease or peace the Buddha talked about as possible would not be possible. But it is, there's something between the unpleasantness and the injustice and the, and the, um, the suffering or the, the, um, the unpleasantness and the, the painfulness of what we relate to and our experience of suffering. This feels really counterintuitive when we first hear about it. It, it, it kind of feels like it doesn't make any sense. How can I have a peaceful heart when there is injustice in the world? How can that be possible? Part of that, I think, part of that confusion comes because of what we think of as peace and what we think of as um, motivation for changing the world for the kind of you know it's very it's very natural when we see injustice in the world we, when we see something happening that is going to create some kind of suffering if we see a child running out into the road when there's a car coming there's a movement towards wanting to do something about that this is this is a movement of compassion and the, the, um, the, the heart can have a measure of kind of ease and peace around this. That, that it's not, there's not a contracted heart around the, the, um, the unpleasantness in the world. And paradoxically, that peace, well, no, that, that peace where we think, sometimes what we think of peace as being no need to do anything. That's what we think of when we think of the word peace, I think. We, we might think, oh, everything's peaceful, no need to do anything. But the peace that the Buddha pointed to is not a peace of non-doing. It is, in fact, the very opposite because in that peaceful heart, that peaceful heart, that unconstricted heart will naturally feel more fully, more deeply the pain and suffering of the world. And there will be a natural movement with that heart that is unconstricted to take action. The movement of compassion. Compassion wants to act to alleviate suffering. And so the, 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 the constricted heart, the, the heart that believes or, or has the sense of, I need this anger in order to make change. You know, that, that anger itself is kind of um, got a view in there that without this anger, I'm not going to do anything. Without this resistance, I'm not going not to do anything. But that, that perspective of anger and resistance doesn't understand the perspective of the open heart, doesn't understand the perspective of compassion. So the, um, the, the, the dukkha around unpleasant experience is really pointing back to how is our mind in relationship to unpleasantness? So there's, you know, there's, there's so many different kinds of unpleasant experience. There's, you know, the, the unpleasantness of physical pain. The, you know, we cut ourselves with a knife. And there is pain in the body. Our body is designed to feel that unpleasantness when we damage it. In order that we take some action to support a healing process. And so the, the pain is kind of a warning signal. It's like something's wrong here. Something needs to be taken care of. We can maybe not think of right or wrong there, but pain is kind of a signal that there's something that needs to be taken care of. We don't have to hate the pain. We don't have to fight against it or beat ourselves up for having done something to, to, uh, to have that pain happen. It can just simply be, oh, this is painful experience. What is the best action to take in the face of this painful experience? But unpleasant experience tends to lead to a not liking, a not wanting, an aversion. And this is that kind of 
shift or the, the place where our mind begins to get involved. We have the unpleasantness experience, the physical pain, and then our mind starts to get involved. I don't like this. I want to get rid of it. I want to... And, and that, that movement to take action to take care of something, this is again a kind of a confusion in our mind. The aversion, the, the habit of aversion has so um, led us through our lives that the habit of aversion thinks, well, if I didn't have aversion, then why would I take care of this? And so the, the, again, the, that we're, we're kind of bought into, we've bought into the view or the belief of aversion that the only way suffering or, or that the only way this unpleasant or painful experience is going to be taken care of is if, is, is if I hate it and if I like, want to have this like, pushing away. And so that constriction of the heart has convinced us that that constriction of the heart is necessary in order to take care of us. And again, that, that constriction is, is not educated in what the open heart is capable of. The movement of a compassionate heart, the kind of movement of our system to well-being, the movement of our, of our kind of the life force wanting to move in the direction of well-being. When there is not the constriction, it will naturally move that direction. We don't need anger and aversion in order to take care of physical pain. And this points to the, the, um, the dukkha dukkha. So the dukkha, the dukkha dukkha, the, the pain itself is not what the Buddha called dukkha. The pain itself is not what the Buddha called suffering. But rather that relationship to that pain. The pushing away, the aversion, the grasping for something pleasant to to get rid of that pain. So that, that is where the suffering is. And that is what, you know, sometimes we, we might say that the, you know, the unpleasantness of experience, I think Gil is the one that, that made, framed this the way this is said, is you know, the unpleasantness of experience, that's going to happen. That's not, that's, that's going to happen. But the suffering is optional. The reactivity to that unpleasantness is optional. And as that reactivity lessens, we find a whole new set of processes that engage us in action in the world in a different way. So this, um, there's the, 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 the pain of unpleasantness, of physical pain. And then the, the harder ones sometimes. I mean, we, we do... Um, we see, I think, more intuitively at times that it's not useful to hate ourselves and to be really angry when we cut ourselves with a knife. It's mu- it, it, that, that we can see, oh, that's not actually so useful. That I can take care of this and not hate myself and not have that extra added, even though it might be very habitual and we have to work at exploring that kind of frustration or resistance. Again, the dukkha is a a range of experience. Frustration might arise there even if anger doesn't arise. And that frustration too is a kind of a mental constriction that's not necessary. It's just a fact. This is what's happened and it needs to be taken care of. It can be cared for. Our our system, we will, will care for ourselves without frustration. And so the, 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 this realm, we can begin to maybe more easily understand what is meant by this suffering being in the mind. And actually, as we meditate and begin to explore the actual quality of physical pain, of the unpleasant feeling tone, we begin to see through exploring the, the physical unpleasantness itself and noticing the relationship to it, the reactivity, the aversion or the frustration, we begin to see with, um, with mindfulness that 
the majority of the unpleasantness actually comes in the reaction. That there is some measure, and sometimes there's a lot of unpleasant feeling. Like if you do cut yourself with a knife, it, it, it can be very painful. And yet, so much of our suffering is not in the physical pain itself, but in the reaction. And that reaction is like a multiplier. And so when we're experiencing a kind of a physical pain, when we have a reaction, we are getting this, like, it's like, it's like feedback. We get a feedback loop, like putting a, a microphone up to a speaker. It, it makes the, the physical unpleasantness just scream when we have that mental reactivity. And as Gil pointed to, that mental reactivity is optional. Much less painful to go through life without that mental reactivity. And part of what we explore is the habit of our mental reactivity. We are not going to, unfortunately, in hearing this and understanding this at the intellectual level, we may, we may have a sense of, oh yeah, that sounds interesting. Maybe I can stop reacting to physical pain. Well, good luck. You know, it is not something we can usually just flip a switch around and say, oh, that's not useful anymore. I'll stop being frustrated when I get hurt. So the, the, um, the work is around recognizing that that mental unpleasantness is also something that we need to, to explore. This is a, another piece of our practice, to not have a reaction to the reaction, to not be frustrated about being angry, but to just, oh, this is what's happening. This has come to be. This has kind of been conditioned. It's almost as, uh, you know, it's... it's, it's, it's it's natural that being raised in the way we have been, that we will have reactivity to unpleasant experience. This is what we've been taught. This is what we've been, how we have navigated our lives. And so, of course, that's going to happen. And so, beginning to be curious about that part, about the exploration of, okay, this is what anger is like. This is the experience of anger. And then we recognize, oh, this is dukkha. This is where that understanding, this is dukkha, comes in. We recognize the difference between the physical pain and the mental. Oh, this is dukkha. That is an insight. When we can recognize that difference and and meet it, oh, this is dukkha. And this is worth understanding. This should be understood. This should be brought in to be, be open to with mindfulness, with curiosity. This should be understood. That's our work. So that's part of dukkha dukkha, the the reaction to physical pain. Somewhat more challenging, perhaps, is is the suffering around, um, you know, I just pointed to a little bit the suffering around... um, the pain, the, the mental reactivity itself. When we have frustration or anger or confusion, we can have reactions to that, and that can be a spiral. When we're afraid, sometimes we're, you know, we get angry about being afraid, or we, we get fearful about being afraid, and, and that becomes a, a, a spiral. We get more and more afraid. This is kind of how, how panic attacks work. The fear building on the fear. And so there's this also... A, um, the process of dukkha dukkha works with unpleasant mental experience. Unpleasant, unpleasantness, not just actual physical pleasantness, but pleasantness that comes in through the unpleasantness that comes in through the mind. That could be that could be through ideas, unpleasant ideas. It could be through uh, unpleasant mental states. And I think in the realm of um, you know, a, an area of this kind of unpleasantness is is the realm of, um, you know, institutional um, the, the the suffering that can happen around institutional power, the dynamics around oppression. That is a form of unpleasantness, very strong unpleasantness that comes with that kind of dynamic. 
And so, again, you know, the question of what might it mean to explore, okay, there's that that's out there. There is, it is, there is a power dynamic out there. There is institutional, uh, systemic kind of oppression that happens. Gender, race, sexuality, all different kinds of of oppression that, that can happen institutionally. And what would it mean, what does it mean to have an easeful heart with that kind of situation? This is harder for us to, to, to kind of grok. What, what might it mean to to understand that the suf- that there is a kind of internal suffering around these situations that 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 can be released even without the change to the external situation again pointing to the you know when there is suffering and that suffering may come in come be felt not only in our own personal ways through injuries to the body or through personal relationships, but also can come in through systemic kinds of cultural ways. So when when that is experienced, that suffering, it's it's kind of like a signal, you know, there's something needs to change here. There's something that needs to happen. Some kind of, you know, taking care of this this, this. this this is a natural movement to want to take care of these situations, to, to want to create different conditions in the world. And yet we don't have to have the uh, constriction of heart in order to make those changes, in order to act in the world, we don't have to have the constricted heart. And so that, again, to, to look at the, the constriction in the heart, the, the, the kind of clamping down around, you know, whether it's around a particular situation or a, a systemic kind of structural um, um, oppression, a dynamic in in a system or an individual kind of situation when whenever there's some kind of of dynamic there which is creating suffering either for oneself or seeing it happen for others and wishing to alleviate that suffering the constricted heart in my sense of it the constricted heart actually doesn't really help in fact, it kind of gets in the way of finding ways to, uh, finding kind of creative ways to, to navigate the situations. Ways to um, speak to change without further, further um, inflaming these reactive patterns. When we're reactive inside, when somebody else is reactive outside, we tend to respond in kind. And so that internally, anger kind of conditions more anger, but it also does so externally. And so the, the, this possibility of you know, the, the, the relationship to the situations in the world that lead to suffering, lead to um, our, our sense of injustice, oppression, fear, confusion, hatred, that the, the, uh, the work with respect to what we can be free of is inside. And then that inner release from that constriction allows us to act in a different way. And again, that, that 
This is counterintuitive because we so much have the orientation and the habit of that anger or that fear or that, you know, that sense of tightening is needed in order to act. And so this, this dukkha dukkha, the dukkha dukkha is... The, the dukkha that we can be free of is not necessarily, we, we, may, we may not be able to change the world. And yet, our hearts can have some peace around this. I like to, to remember the, you know, the, the Buddha's own story. You know, he... He is said to have come to this realization and to have a peaceful heart. And that, that realization, well, initially when he came to that realization, there was this kind of sense in his mind, the story goes that, wow, this is subtle. This, is, this, is, this understanding of dukkha, this is hard to see. This is really hard to grok. because of our habit, because of our, you know, our tendency, because we have been so swamped and so taken over by the way we've habitually reacted to suffering, it's really hard to see that it's, there's an inner kind of release that can happen. And his, his first thought was, it said, we don't really know what he first thought, but this is the myth of, of the Buddha's awakening. It said that he thought, wow, this is really subtle. It's really hard to understand this subtle kind of release of shift of the mind that can lead to this freedom that I'm experiencing. People are not going to get it. And that would be, that would be vexing. And so why don't I just sit here and enjoy this freedom? And what's said is that there was a kind of a, of a, um, a deity that came to him that said, oh please, there are some people who will understand. You need to teach this. And so he, he, he decided to teach. He did decide to act. That movement towards teaching this subtle understanding, he said, out of compassion for the welfare of beings, I will teach this. And so he did, he did act in that way. And then also, as he lived his life, he acted in ways. At one point, he, he um, returned to the, to the place where he grew up. And the kingdoms there were engaged in fighting over the water rights of a river. And they were coming to blows around the water rights. And the Buddha stood in the middle of the battlefield and said, this has to stop. This is not the way. And so again, he didn't just like sit in a cave or sit on a mountaintop. He engaged with systemic injustice, with societal confusion, with individuals. And so this is the, the Buddha story is a story of engagement, but engagement from a place of a peaceful heart. And again, we might, the, 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 the word peace, I think... I would love a word for peace that includes something that means, you know, engaged peace. (laughs) Engaged peace. So this recognition, this is suffering. This, you know, this kind of, the seeing of, oh, there's stuff happening And then there's an inner relationship to it. The constriction, the fear, the confusion, the the wanting, the holding, the clinging. It often comes with a feeling of constriction. Inner constriction. That can be recognized. This is the suffering. It's not what's happening that is the suffering where there's the possibility of freedom. And that understanding, that recognition leads us to, okay, this needs to be understood. 
We'll talk about more of that, that more next time. Suffering should be understood. But there's a couple minutes if there's any comments or, or um, questions about anything I've pointed to. I feel like I've just skimmed the surface of this. <laughs> Let's just sit for a couple minutes. See how the the body and mind are now in this condition, having heard these words. Can there be a sense of okayness with whatever is happening in this moment. No need for the situation what has come to be, what is already here, looking at the difference between what is already here and what's our relationship to that, and letting there be a curiosity. perhaps at times recognizing, oh, this is suffering. That understanding, that insight, oh, this is suffering. Thank you for your attention.